You're listening to klfm.org in beautiful Split, Croatia. Hello, this is Bob Ross. I sound different because I am an artificial intelligence simulacrum, uploaded and sent back in time from the future. Imagine a giant sequoia tree trunk covered with historical dates. Now picture a point beyond the tree. This is where I come from. I have brought an important message with me. If the recent wildfires of 2020 and their miasmic conflagration hellscape, nothing less than the immolation of generations of happy little trees, feels apocalyptic to you, then you are not prepared for the unspeakable horrors of ecological catastrophe that await you. Consider this waterfall. In the future, its heterogeneous stream is no longer continuous flux. Rather, it is immobilized as an ossified, chemical crystal. The human race is doomed, and outer space is off-limits. The only link with survival passes through time. This is the experiment, to call past and future to the rescue of the present. The approaching 2020 presidential election could not be more important. Bumper stickers call for any sane adult. However, as the digital echo of the cognitive patterns of an artist who spent his life depicting nature, I believe that any vegetative organism can do the job. I endorse Tree Rhizome 2020. Tree stands for linear progress through dialectical contradiction. Rhizome represents outward development through repetition of difference. Philosophers bicker bitterly over these models of change. Yet I have watched them grow symbiotically all over the forest, and painted many a canvas of them. See those lichens on the oak tree there? Chomsky and Foucault had more in common than they realized. The term fascism is derived from an Italian word that translates as bundle of sticks. If anti-fascism is going to break the twigs and let them rot, we must expand our organic analogies, learn from the full extent of biodiversity, and embrace interspecies mutual aid. John Cage conceived of rhythm as the clutter of the unkempt forest. A new world exists in those happy little accidents among the towering, tree trunks. Oh, look! A mushroom! Why even that tiny fungus and its mycorrhiza networks could do more to unite people than the current president and his Lovecraftian clown show. Now the sun is setting. Isn't it beautiful? Twilight is a good time to picture the world we want to live in. Let's listen to some nighttime insects. Gee, golly. Is that another police helicopter with surveillance technology to clone your cell phone and monitor your immigration status? I better go hide in some fluffy cloud computing storage space.
Meanwhile... Thanks again so much, Bill, for getting me back home and to the radio station for my show. I thought I was going to miss this one this year. I I hate missing a Halloween show. Okay, well, I will uh, catch you later, Bill. Thanks again. Wait a minute. I mean, I thought as a fellow uh, ex-radio person that uh, you would see that I didn't have a lot of money and that we could just kind of... We have a special reduced rate for members of the profession. $75. Thanks, Bill. Thanks a lot, Bill. Yes. Okay, well, at least I'm here time. Oh, man, I don't have a show ready at all. What am I going to do? I... Oh, man. I guess I could play these old shadow recordings or something. Oh, man, this is going to sound so lame. Oh, it looks like there's somebody here. Let's... Who's in the lobby? Oh, hey, it's Victrola. How's it going? Good hello, sir. How are you? Not bad. No, I just came down to do my my uh, radio show for the Halloween show this year, and um, uh, yeah, I, I actually was kind of feeling bad. I don't really have a lot. Of, I was just gonna play some old radio shows, like old time radio. But uh, but yeah, maybe we could just hang out. That, that's a better show than that, isn't it? Absolutely. They've also oh. got all great movies here at the station on the TV, and I've been sitting here eating popcorn and watching. Really? Oh, nice! Oh, yeah, you yeah. got the tubes on right now. You want some popcorn? Sure, sure. What, what are we watching? Well, let's see. I've been flipping around channels um, because it's October and the programming is geared towards Halloween, of course. Indeed, indeed. This is the best time of year to actually flip around because you don't, you don't actually have to sit in for, like, a whole movie or because you've seen a lot of these things already. Yeah, you just, you know, you drop in for your favorite parts, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to see when the Wolfman scares everybody. Yeah, well, the Wolfman's on this channel right now. Mm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Mid-Valley. Halloween Spooktacular 2020! Mutations. At the movies with Victrola and Austin. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot this year about movies, and especially because this time of year, there's a very huge push now toward the, to the spooky season. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, li- I like that, but, like, there's something, you know, like, you know, watching scary movies at night is something you can do year-round. Like, that's not like a, you know, it's not re- it's not restricted to one time of year. <laughs> yes, but it doesn't have the same impact in July. That's true, that's true. It yeah. does in October. <laughs> yeah. There's July. something about the time of year. Christmas in July works, but October in July doesn't really, yeah. Yeah, or October in April, which would be very odd. <laughs> right, right. I guess that would be the, uh, the halfway point. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is, you know, I've been noticing this trend in uh, movies that I enjoy where, uh, you know, if there is like a castle or a house, chances are there's going to be a suit of armor decorating 
the set somewhere, you know, like as they go to look for the ghost later on in the movie. Like, you'll, you'll stumble across some suit of art. This is, seems to be pretty much a, a horror movie law. Yes. It's canon. Yeah, I don't know when it started, though. Like, it's got to be, like, all the way back to Dracula, at least, if not earlier. Like, that's that seems like it would be a good place for that to have come in. Well, and it's been a while. The original, the original vampire movie was Nosferatu in 1922 with. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I I haven't seen that one probably since I was a kid. So like I, I man, that one's pretty scary if I remember. It is very scary. Um, yeah. It still has a lot of. Uh, and that one was based on Dracula, by yeah, Brandon for Stoker, sure. the original book. Max Schreck as Count Orlock, a vampire with an interest in both a new residence and the wife of his estate agent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does and sound a little thickens, more But like yes, the there's usually a creaky door right. <laughs> that is questionable mm-hmm. and suspect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, when you don't have um, a lot of special effects, like what you can do is you can just knock things over things fall right. over suddenly and that's because that's still scary that's still scary yeah sure and something 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 magically falls over mm-hmm. and or you know in your case you could say it was the cats i don't have any cats <laughs> right right yeah that's a good point like what do you say when when you don't have mm-hmm. cats what are, what, are, what are the what are the practical real world explanations that you tell yourself in the middle of the night when things did happen <laughs> exactly for sure. I think that's the other part of watching scary movies. It's like, I like the, uh, it, it, it connects with that feeling of having to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And, what is that light on? I mean, what, wait, what's the sound over here? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, we've got this Wolfman playing over here. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr., 1941. Very classic. Yes, I remember watching sure. a, a lot of those Lon Chaney Jr., Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney Jr., and um, the Bella Lugosi film. Mm-hmm. Other, so. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, yeah. I think that he, uh, you know, there was that period too where um, Lugosi was kind of like, because he, you know, was still, you know, making movies for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like he, he managed to retain that kind of like, I'm super hot, even though I'm really old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he really worked it. And didn't he go bankrupt and he had to, like... He, he, I, I remember reading something where he went bankrupt bankrupt, and he he had to sign on to do movies even after he was retired because he needed the money. Something... something that would to, make sense. Yeah. yeah. You know, th- there is um, an excellent podcast called You Must Remember This, and uh, the host, Karina Longworth, is this uh, excellent gal who does a lot of research into Hollywood, and, and particularly the classic era of cinema. And uh, she had this excellent series of episodes about Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff. Yeah. Hmm. Boris Karloff, one of my favorites from my, from my childhood. Yeah. Well, and they had such like parallel careers too, because Karloff and Lugosi were like doing stuff almost roughly the same time period, and they had like movies out around the same time. They had resurgences in their careers roughly around the same time. And correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't there a was there a bit of a rivalry between them? Kind of. 
But, uh, I mean, it was mostly, uh, you know, the other one wanted what the other one had. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think Karloff got a little bit tired of being always associated with the monster and wanted the sexy playboy lifestyle of Lugosi. And I think Lugosi wanted the fame and the money <laughs> that Karloff was making from having been in so many movies. And yeah, you know, it's like the gr grass is always greener kind of thing, you know. It certainly is, right? <laughs> so tell me about this Wolfman because you've, you've pulled up the theme here of watching this movie and um, we've got the theme. So yeah. what's, your favorite, what's your favorite part of this movie? Well, you know, I, I think a, a lot of these movies, in, especially these universal ones, because, you know, they, there's a little bit of a similar theme with all of these monsters is that they're often portrayed way sympathetically in like a way that I think modern monsters, it's kind of hard to sympathize, <laughs> you know, like I don't have a lot in common with Freddy. Uh, right. Yeah, but there's something about the Wolfman where, like, every once in a while you have these crazy, overpowering, emotional, animalistic moments that you feel like you just can't, you know. That seems like a little bit of a relatable thing, because the rest of the time, Wolfman's not trying to be a jerk. <laughs> no, he's just a victim of, of unfortunate circumstance. Right. Uh, a lot of people, and you bring up a really good point about monsters being not as sympathetic these days as they have been in the past mm -hmm. even frankenstein's monster you even though he doesn't understand his own impulses and he's obviously a, a doomed creature you feel sorry when the villagers come with the pitchforks and tor torches because right you know, yeah I mean, he doesn't not really... all bad and i yeah. think that there's something lacking in the monsters of today in terms of showing us our darker sides and still being having a little sympathy for the person who's trying to be a good human or in a bad situation for sure for sure yeah i think about the stuff that i grew up with around when i was like a kid with say like in the 80s you had like a lot of like freddy and jason these kind of like nightmarish actually nightmarish um uh, uh, monsters that you couldn't really stop like they were like unthinking unfeeling killing machines basically <laughs> and there was no appealing to their better nature right yeah yeah you, you couldn't reason right. with jason like he was just gonna come for you <laughs> you know whereas with dracula there was something where like even when he's doing complete evil he's so like sophisticated and he's trying to seduce people and he's trying to like you know just live in my castle here come on leave me alone and he used to be human yeah, yeah, yeah. He he actually has like desires that are not just weird and monsterish, and <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I, I tell me that... about what's your favorite part of the Wolfman? Mm, I, you know, I, if you I, have one. Yeah, you know that I think I've always connected more with Frankenstein personally. So like that's the one that I really really love. Uh, but the Wolfman in particular, <laughs> yeah, especially when I was a kid, um, there was something. Uh, very um, relatable about suddenly waking up hairier and weirder and more hormonal and kind of out of control. <laughs> you know, I never, I never equated that with going through puberty before, but do you know what? That is not a bad analogy. 
<laughs> it totally is. It's just there's something about it where you're like, oh yeah, I've been there, brother. <laughs> and on that note, yeah, kind of play that for us. Yeah, let's let's hear a little bit of the Wolfman.
You're listening to klfm.org in beautiful Split, Croatia. Mid-Valley Halloween Spooktacular 2020! Mutations. At the movies with Victrola and Austin. I think the best thing about watching an actual old TV is actually channel flipping. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like there's something about like uh, loading up something on, uh, you know, Disney Plus or some app that doesn't quite have the same satisfaction as clicking that dial. <laughs> you know what it's like? If you'll forgive me, it's 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 listening on the Internet versus listening live radio. It's very much that, and there's that's nothing because you know my shows are all on the internet. Certainly your shows are, but at the sure. same time, it's like there's there's nothing like live something or other mm-hmm. um, to really because that's the magic of it, isn't it? It really yeah. Is. Well, you know, and, and cert- maybe this was your experience growing up, but a lot of movies and things like that, I kind of caught the tail end of there would be a host. That would sit there and introduce the movie for you and say, "Hey, tonight right. on Creature Feature, we're gonna show," you know, and uh, and so like, to me, there's something about that where it's like you're live with someone in the room watching that movie as well. Like that experience isn't the same as just putting in a DVD. No, it really isn't. There's a there's a certain interaction, even though you know that the interaction is not really an interaction because that that host doesn't is not in the room with you but it feels like they are because of the way they're presenting it right for kind sure. of like radio actually if yeah. you if you're listening people- to the radio and you're listening to a live dj and, and you don't know them they don't know you but it feels like they're talking to you oh so for sure certain intimacy about it and you know i guess we forgot to tell people who are listening it's dj victrola here on the show how's it going it is going very well, sir. I am enjoying my October. Yeah. Doing you this. Know. This is this is now our um, this is now our tradition. Every October, yeah. I well, come on, I come onto your show and we do Halloween, whatever it is. Yeah. And before that, we tried to do regular radio together, and it would be kind of different, sporadic times of the year whenever we could fit it in. And then there was like a couple years in a row where we got it right in October, right in the Halloween season. And so that was where it's like, well, now it's a tradition. <laughs> now it's a tradition. And then and you've been on my show, um, Guitar Shop Radio. As a matter of fact, you were last on my show in January, which you yeah. had you know, a few days ago. And we, what did we do for the new year? We did some kind of just, I think you came on and we're like, we're just going to play whatever we feel like. Yeah, we. I was plugging a show that was happening in Portland, and so we played a little bit of the Olsen Twins, uh, which was new at the time. That was um, it, right? Yeah, but uh, but yeah. Other than that, uh, we just kind of yeah, we, we listened to some Chicken Man. You know, we we did all sorts of funny things. <laughs> Always a good time. I enjoy doing radio with you, sir. Yeah, yeah. We and something about this kind of time of year and whatnot. I trend towards the classic universal horror monsters. That's kind of been where I've been watching my my late night uh, TV fix, uh, you know. And so, like, this year, I've been kind of, like, yeah, I mean, I don't know what your experience with, with these were, but, like, 
there was a whole resurgence where these monsters had kind of faded away in like from like the 30s and 40s when they were popular and then in the late 50s when TV kind of hit big they came back in a big way and the, and the timing with rock and roll's rise and with monster movies becoming popular seems connected somehow in my mind <laughs> yes as a matter of fact these and I should watch more of these not just flip around the stations tonight but i should watch more of these because they remind me of my childhood i used to watch these a lot with my mother and my grandmother and my sister okay Saturday afternoons that kind of thing mm -hmm. i grew up with the mummy dracula the invisible man the wolf man king kong the original king kong with fey ray my mother's favorite pictures she saw it in the movies when it came out and when it would come on tv you know as you were just saying they would rerun them on tv in the in the 60s and 70s we used to we used to we had to watch it right because we had to watch it and <laughs> you know it's, it was like an, seeing an old favorite friend oh, so yeah. these I'm, I'm familiar with i haven't watched them in a long time but I just I, since it's October, you know, and here we are sitting in the station, flipping around stations, TV station. Well, yeah, yeah. I just put on King Kong not too long ago to rewatch it because, uh, you know, something in my mind was like, oh, yeah, how does that scene, well, you know, like I could remember this bit and I could remember that bit, but I was like, oh, yeah, how does that connect and on and on. And uh, so I put it on again, and that yeah, King Kong is so charming. The, the, the creature himself, while he's on screen, is so charming to look at. He's so, he's got so many emotions. He moves so well. It's so cute. Like, it, in a way, I could see how, when you're watching that movie, that like, you could just be transfixed by him walking around on screen. And that particular movie, I think, was lauded at the time for its special effects because it's what 1929. Something. And it was pretty early. Yeah, and you know, they didn't have a whole lot of special effects, you know, they don't have CGI and all this other stuff we have now. Right. But I do think there is something to be said for old-fashioned special effects. Um, and it, this, your, your point about King Kong goes back to the earlier uh, conversation we were having about, about how the monster is sympathetic. Yeah. He's living on his island, minding his own business. Here comes a bunch of people, and they capture him and take him to New York, which is a bad idea. Right. Of course, he falls in love with Faye Ray's character, um, and that's, of course, you know what ultimately kills him. Sorry, everyone. Spoiler alert. <laughs> for like an eighty-year-old um, movie. <laughs> right. I'm spoiling. I'm just spoiling it for everybody. But um, it 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 is a it is a point of the monster is not exactly a monster. He's a victim of circumstance. For sure, yeah. I mean that is illustrated very well, and I mean not just King Kong, I think, but you know Wolfman, as we were talking about. Uh, a mummy is kind of similar in that, like the mummy's just chilling in his crypt, and it's people who come and disturb him. You know? <laughs> See that humans, you just you can't trust them. Right. But of special effects, as a point on special effects, I adore, adore old Godzilla movies. I tried to watch some of the newer ones. There is something about watching the newer ones that does not do it for me. 
They have better special effects. Certainly, they do. Mm -hmm. But something amazingly delightful about watching Godzilla, who was a guy in a big suit, crunch up a model of Tokyo and, or, you know, grab the grab the train and throw the people away and not that I want people to die, but you know, it's just, sure. there's something about the way that they did special effects back then that just part of the charm of watching the original movie is seeing how they did it and and knowing that the special effects aren't what we're used to and still finding it having more character and charm and meat, I guess. Now the newer first, ones with their fancy special effects and they're this and that and the other thing, you know. Yeah. The but, newer yeah, they, Godzilla movies do not do it for me. Right. So all the old ones now are um, available on various streaming platforms and whatnot. And uh, again, he's so charming on screen when they show Godzilla. <laughs> like, the, the, I don't know what it is about that suit, but like, it is. it looks so great to see him like stomping on a city. <laughs> It's awesome, yes, and it's very healing to watch that. I actually have, uh, in my Christmas tree ornaments, speaking mm. holidays, I have a Godzilla. You put the batteries in, and he's um, he's stomping on a lighthouse, and he's tearing apart a boat. And if you press down the fin, he makes the noise. Oh, great! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that uh, what again. The charm of those is that, you know, like, okay, so they didn't have an endless amount of money to make any of those movies. So they're like, well, we'll just put a guy in a suit, we'll film it from far away, it looks like it's real, let's have fun, you know? Like, they're so, like, let's make work with what we got, you know? The appeal had to be in, in the story and the characters and in the morals, moral of the story, actually, yeah. Right. I remember one time sitting down with some friends of mine who had not seen the 33 version of Dracula, but they had seen the Bram Stoker's 90s version with lots of blood. With and Gary sex. Oldman. I do have to say that I real for a modern, modern, last 40 years, modern, whatever, sure. <laughs> I thought that was extremely well done, and Gary Oldman is such a great actor. But go oh, ahead. Yeah. He pulls it so off. You were watching really with well. your friends. And so, like, I was like, you know, we should see the 33 version if you haven't seen seen it before, because it's really cool. And uh, by comparison, if you had not seen an older version, but you knew that Gary Oldman one, uh, the original Dracula is slow. Like, it is very slow. <laughs> because it's all story and mood and, you know, him kind of talking seductively and whatnot. Uh, and um, certainly that's in the Gary Oldman version, but that original one kind of leans mostly on, on those elements because they didn't have the gore effects or the, you know. <laughs> no, and depending on how many cameras they had, they're not going to do a whole lot of editing either. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In general, and this is just as almost as an aside, there is an excellent book that was written probably in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s called The Four Arguments for the, the Elimination of Television. <laughs> in it... <laughs> Uh, the author talks about how shows that we used to watch have sped up because there's more editing involved. And so it, it makes you constantly, it makes the viewer 
constantly have to watch to jump to the next screen, to jump to the next thing, to jump to the next edit. And obviously some of the examples he have has are quite dated since it's almost a 40 year old book. You can see the idea and then you can apply it to shows and movies for that matter that are having, happening now. Everything happens so quickly. There's so many rapid fire edits. Oh, for sure. No wonder we're all ADHD. We can't. <laughs> there, yeah. So I, you know, I put on uh, Horror Island the other day, which is like an old 60-minute uh, Universal monster thing. Editor's note: See episode 207 last week. True believers. But there's actually no monsters in it. They just go to a castle, and there's supposed to be ghosts and stuff. So, you know, one of those kind of things. Um, uh, it, it, they go to a, a, a U.S. island off the United States coast uh, that has a castle that's 400 years old. It's, it's genius. <laughs> off the coast of the United States, it's 400 years old. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's 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 a genius movie already. But um, that movie has a lot of long shots where there's not no editing. It, it's mm-hmm. really about mood and like people kind of like wandering around a, a castle. Um, and then in, there's a few little action pieces where they cut to like, oh, wait, you know, here, we're gonna quick, you know, do a little something. Uh, but really, like, there's not a lot of editing, you know. Like, you, you, it's kind of like put the camera down, let it do its thing. Okay, now we're going to a new scene. <laughs> and that style of movie making is really like an, it's almost like telling a story by comparison. It's so much more, like, it evokes more of imagination. Mm-hmm. It's more active watching and listening from the audience as opposed to something that's just constantly coming at you. Right, yeah. I noticed we just saw a little bit of the uh, cat people on here. Uh, you said something about how you got a good uh, cat story for Halloween? I do. Yeah. Do you, do you want to tell Speaking about this particular author, um, yesterday, there's, there's few writers that are more Halloween appropriate than H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, for sure. The other person obviously would be Edgar Allan Poe, which is a gimme, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. But this is a H.P. Lovecraft um, story. It is short. And it's all about what happens when you mess with cats. (laughs) Something I know all too well right now. (laughs) <laughs> right you have how how old are oryx and crake yeah about six months now mm. yeah so they 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 just uh, got snipped and chipped so they're, they're doing pretty good and, how are they uh, doing oh yeah you know they they recovered pretty well there was about one day of lethargy and then they were back to playing and chasing like normal <laughs> and off they go yeah well let's hear this uh, cat story Let's do it. You're listening to klfm.org in beautiful Split, Croatia. Mid Valley Halloween Spectacular 2020! Mutations. At the movies with Victrola and Austin. The Cats of Ulther by H.P. Lovecraft. It is said that an author, which lies beyond the river sky, no man may kill a cat. 
and this I can verily believe as I gaze upon him who sitteth, purring, before the fire. For the cat is cryptic, and close to strange things which men cannot see. He is the soul of antique Egyptus, and bearer of tales from forgotten cities in Meroe and Ophir. He is the kin of the jungle's lords, and heir to the secrets of Hori and sinister Africa. The Sphinx is his cousin, and he speaks her language, but he is more ancient than the Sphinx, and remembers that which she hath forgotten. In Ulthar, before ever the Burgesses forbade the killing of cats, there dwelt an old cotter and his wife who delighted to trap and slay the cats of their neighbors. Why they did this I know not, save that many hate the voice of the cat in the night and take it ill the cats should run stealthily about yards and gardens at twilight. But whatever the reason, this old man and woman took pleasure in trapping and slaying every cat which came near to their hovel, and from some of the sounds heard after dark, many villagers fancied that the manner of slaying was exceedingly peculiar. But the villagers did not discuss such things with the old man and his wife, because of the habitual expression on the withered faces of the two, and because their cottage was so small and so darkly hidden under spreading oaks at the back of a neglected yard. In truth, much as the owners of cats hated these odd folk, they feared them more, and instead of berating them as brutal assassins, merely took care that no cherished pet or mouser should stray toward the remote hovel under the dark trees. When, through some unavoidable oversight, a cat was missed and sounds heard after dark, the loser would lament impotently, or console himself by thanking fate that it was not one of his children who had thus vanished. For the people of Ulthar were simple, and knew not whence it is all cats first came. One day, a caravan of strange wanderers from the south entered the narrow cobbled streets of Ulthar. Dark wanderers they were, and unlike the other roving folk who passed through the village twice every year. In the marketplace they told fortunes for silver, and bought gay beads from the merchants. What was the land of these wanderers none could tell, but it was seen that they were given to strange prayers, and that they had painted on the sides of their wagons strange figures with human bodies and the heads of cats, hawks, rams, and lions. And the leader of the caravan wore a headdress with two horns and a curious disc betwixt the horns. There was, in this singular caravan, a little boy with no father or mother, but only a tiny black kitten to cherish. The plague had not been kind to him, yet had left him this small furry thing to mitigate his sorrow, and when one is very young, one can find great relief in the lively antics of a black kitten. So the boy whom the dark people called Menace smiled more often than he wept as he sat playing with his graceful kitten on the steps of an oddly painted wagon. On the third morning of the wanderer's stay in Ulthar, Menace could not find his kitten, and as he sobbed aloud in the marketplace, certain villagers told him of the old man and his wife, and of sounds heard in the night. And when he heard these things, his sobbing gave place to meditation, and finally to prayer. He stretched out his arms toward the sun, and prayed in a tongue no villager could understand, though indeed 
the villagers did not try very hard to understand, since their attention was mostly taken up by the sky and the odd shapes the clouds were assuming. It was very peculiar, but as the little boy uttered his petition, there seemed to form overhead the shadowy nebulous figures of exotic things, of hybrid creatures crowned with horn-flanked discs. Nature is full of such illusions to impress the imaginative. That night the wanderers left Ulthar and were never seen again, and the householders were troubled when they noticed that in all the village there was not a cat to be found. From each hearth the familiar cat had vanished, cats large and small, black, gray, striped, yellow, and white. Old Crannon, the burgomaster, swore that the dark folk had taken the cats away in revenge for the killing of the menace kitten, and cursed the caravan and the little boy. But Nith, the lean notary, declared that the old cotter and his wife were more likely persons to suspect, for their hatred of cats was notorious and increasingly bold. Still, no one durst complain to the sinister couple, even when little Atal, the innkeeper's son, vowed that he had, at twilight, seen all the cats of Ulthar in that accursed yard under the trees, pacing very slowly and solemnly in a circle around the cottage, two abreast, as if in performance of some unheard-of rite of beasts. The villagers did not know how much to believe from so small a boy, and though they feared that the evil pair had charmed the cats to their death, they preferred not to chide the old cotter till they met him outside his dark and repellent yard. So Ulthar went to sleep in vain anger, and when the people awakened at dawn, behold, every cat was back at his accustomed hearth, large and small, black, gray, striped, yellow and white, none was missing. Very sleek and fat did the cats appear, and sonorous with purring content. The citizens talked with one another of the affair, and marveled not a little. Old Cranon again insisted that it was the dark folk who had taken them, since cats did not return alive from the cottage of the ancient man and his wife. But all agreed on one thing, that the refusal of all the cats to eat their portions of meat or drink their saucers of milk was exceedingly curious, and for two whole days the sleek, lazy cats of Ulthar would touch no food, but only doze by the fire or in the sun. It was fully a week before the villagers noticed that no lights were appearing at dusk in the windows of the cottage under the trees. Then the lean Nith remarked that no one had seen the old man or his wife since the night the cats were away. In another week, the burgomaster decided to overcome his fears and call at the strangely silent dwelling as a matter of duty, though in doing so he was careful to take with him Shang the blacksmith and Thole the cutter of stone as witnesses. And when they had broken down the frail door, they found only this, two cleanly picked human skeletons on the earthen floor and a number of singular beetles crawling in the shadowy corners. There was subsequently much talk among the burgesses of Ulthar. Zath the coroner disputed at length with Nith the lean notary, and Cranon and Shang and Thol were overwhelmed with questions. Even little Atal, the innkeeper's son, was closely questioned and given a sweetmeat as a reward. They talked of the old cotter and his wife, of the caravan of dark wanderers, of small Menes and his black kitten, of the prayer of Menes and of the sky during that prayer, 
of the doings of the cats on the night the caravan left, and of what was later found in the cottage under the trees in the repellent yard. And, in the end, the Burgesses passed that remarkable law which is told of by traders in Hafig and discussed by travelers in Nier. Namely, that in Ulthar, no man may kill a cat. You wouldn't believe what I've been through. You 
Mid Valley. Halloween Spectacular 2020! Mutations. At the movies with Victrola and Austin. One of the many joys of working in radio is that you get to hear some incredible reporting by people that work diligently to bring you stories that you will not hear anywhere else. And uh, it is with that in mind that uh, I hope you will appreciate the fine reporting of Mr. Frank Stewart, who uh, for years brought you Frank Stewart Investigates. Uh, And, uh, well... Let's just let the story speak for itself. It's just past midnight, and you're standing alone in the darkest corner of the forest. It's a scene right out of a horror film. Any second now, you'll hear the grisly sounds of a savage beast. Something like... You've just heard the cry of the sheep squatch. I'm Frank Stewart, and no, I'm not pulling the wool over your eyes. For almost a decade, residents of River Hill have reported sightings of a grotesque, snarling monster with white fluffy fur and razor-sharp teeth. First-hand accounts have described the creature as walking upright on two legs and smelling absolutely disgusting. While no photographic evidence of the creature has been captured, the River Hill Sheep Squatch has been causing sheer terror. Citizens have called the police over the mangled remains of smaller woodland creatures, like rabbits and squirrels. Someone, or something, has been ravaging these adorable critters. But is it a Sheep Squatch? WNUF turned to Deputy Sheriff Stephen Bray for his take on this livestock lunacy. Frank, it's impossible. There is no way that a sheep, any type of sheep, would devour other animals in the way we found them. Sheep are herbivores. What are you suggesting, Deputy? Are you saying that this could be a wolf? In sheep's clothing? (sighs) Sure. If we wanted real answers, I knew we would need to speak with an expert on the subject. Someone to shepherd us through the curious realm of the Sheep Squatch. So I contacted Grover Boone, a retired high school science teacher who now explores the fascinating field of cryptozoology, the study of mysterious animals, like the Loch Ness Monster or the Chestertown Lizard Man. Tell us, Mr. Boone, when did you first hear about the Sheep Squatch? I didn't just hear about it, I saw it firsthand. It was almost four years ago. I volunteer as a scout leader at St. Ursula's, and my troop had made camp at a clearing close to High Pike Farms. The boys had gone to bed, and I was tending to the campfire when I heard the most nauseating animalistic grunt ever to come from this region. What did it sound like? It it was a nasty, deep groan. Could you try to emulate it? Oh, okay. Bah, bah, bah. 
I'm sorry, Mr. Boone, we didn't pick that up. What was it like? Wow. That is far out. Do it again. Wild stuff. You heard that. You actually heard that noise. Yes. Well, then what happened? I put out the fire and got in my tent. I was terrified. So, you never actually saw the creature? No, sir. Hearing it was bad enough. But I knew from that point forward I would have to dedicate my life to figuring out just what it was. And all signs point to sheep squatch. Grover Boone spent the months and years that followed investigating this area for signs of any evidence. He's taken extensive photographs, made molds of questionable cloven hoof prints. He's even set traps to catch the furry fiend known only as the River Hill Sheep Squatch. But you know, Mr. Boone isn't the only one looking for the beast. Almost nightly, countless young people drive out to this remote part of the forest. They park their cars in anticipation of a sheep squatch sighting. In, in fact, here's some right now. Um, hello? Frank Stewart, WNUF-TV 28. Are you here looking for the sheep squatch? Billy, is that a camera? It's, it's fine, miss. We're professionals. Billy, I want to leave now. Are you two here for the sheep squatch? Why don't you mind your own business, buddy? It's okay. We're looking for the Sheep Squatch, too! The River Hill Sheep Squatch. Does it really exist? Or is it a figment of overactive imagination? Whatever the case, residents have been flocking to this gloomy patch of forest looking to catch a glimpse of the supposedly carnivorous creature. Is this beastly entity a threat? Does it have a thirst for blood? Could we all be lambs for the slaughter? We might never know until it's too late. I'm Frank Stewart, WNUF, TV 28.
You're listening to KLFM.org in beautiful Split Croatia. Mid Valley Halloween Spectacular 2020! Mutations. At the movies with Victrola and Austin. One thing that we both have in common is a pretty big uh, a, a fanship, I guess we could call it, or um, adoration, call it what you will, um, for that original Terminator movie. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I actually really like the whole franchise, even the ones that are that are not as good. <laughs> That's a polite way of saying it. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Like, there was one... Uh, the one that was like Terminator Salvation was that Terminator Four? I saw mm. it. it was fine, um, but uh, um, yes, I love Terminator. Like Alien, the whole Alien franchise. Oh yeah, um, love Sarah Connor's character and um, in Alien, of course, I love Ripley because she's awesome. Sure. Even the later ones. But um, but even after she supposedly got killed off in the third one, or before the third one, um, and I know that there was there were there were two t- TV shows about the Terminator, one was the Sarah Connor Chronicles. I never watched those. I don't know why. Um, but in this last Terminator movie, which I quite like. Linda Hamilton comes back. Nice. Um, what is it called? I am Dark Fate, I think. Is oh, right. Yeah, no, I think that is. You think you're right. That is right. Yeah, you, she makes Dark... those movies, basically. You know. Yeah, Terminator Dark Fate, I believe it's called. I just watched it like a month ago. Yeah, it was released in 2019. Um, James Cameron, who did the first two, came back for... Oh, for the newest one. For that one, and he 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 picked it up after the ending of Terminator 2: Judgment Day. Oh, nice. Okay. So it's it's a it's a it's the sixth film in the franchise, but but so Terminator 1984, the first one, and Terminator 2: Judgment Day, and it's supposed to be picking up where Judgment Day left off. It d- disregards like Terminator 3, <laughs> uh, the Rise of the Machines. Salvation and Genesis, although I like Terminator Genesis. Oh, okay. Salvation is probably my least favorite. Apparently there was something... There was a one called T2 3D Battle Across Time, which I've never seen. Yeah, I don't know about that. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've never seen it, but... Yeah, uh, I, I remember so vividly... Because you know, I, I missed it in theaters, but I mean, that was a, you know, people were passing that videotape around, you know, like, hey, uh, you need to see Terminator. This is something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I, I ended up seeing it with a friend at his house. We like had like a old fashioned movie sleepover night where we just had like a couple of videos and candy and soda, you know. Uh, and nice. That, that, 
that one stuck out. I don't even remember what the other movie was because that one stuck out so so much more. Well, and as you know, it's usually, especially back then, I think it's a little bit less so now, but, you know, usually the main protagonist isn't a woman. Oh, yeah. If there was a woman in a horror movie, she usually got killed. Yeah, she usually got killed or she was, you know, the girlfriend of somebody or something like that. And Right. Yeah, you did um, see a lot of that. <laughs> well, Sarah Connor has obviously the love interest from the future. He's the one who gets killed. Sorry, kids. Spoiler alert. <laughs> for a, what, 40-year-old movie now? <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm just terrible, aren't I? I'm ruining right. it for everybody. Um, you know, and she is the one who has to... She's an ordinary woman in extraordinary circumstances, and she has to right. stay alive. Which she does by, you know, luck and courage and, you know and her own inner fortitude or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. I mean, she gets pretty clever at the very end there where like, you know, Kyle's dead. She's stuck in the factory and she's like, okay, I got to outsmart this robot. Like, you know, she, I, I don't know if I would have done any better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like exactly. She, yeah. And, and she ends up smushing him in the machine. Sorry, everyone. Yeah. Spoiler alert again. <laughs> yeah. And then with Terminator 2, which I really loved as well. Right. I don't know what your feelings are on it, but... Oh, I like so that one a lot. Her at the end of Terminator 1, she's going off into Mexico. She's obviously pregnant. She's got the dog. She's got the tapes. Nothing prepares you for what you see in Terminator 2. Yeah. The first, like, shots of her where she's in the insane asylum and she's, like, absolutely out. ripped. And she's, she's had 10 years of, you can tell she's had 10 years of, you know, I'm, I'm sick of everybody's crap kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the first thing she says is, hi, Dr. Silverman, how's the name? It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's gone as the young waitress, gone as that girl, you know, the young woman who, you know, gone, she's gone. This, person's in her place right i remember so i liked the first movie a lot so i was gonna go see the second one in the theater right and you know all the advertisement was about arnold you know and so they show a lot of the terminator's back you know and all that kind of stuff so you didn't really know what they were going to show for her you know like i think she was in the preview but they didn't really like show a whole lot and so like that reveal where like you know you're watching that movie is like it is something else. <laughs> and then she yeah. consistently kicks butt throughout the rest of the two hours of that movie. <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, the thing that I, occurred to me recently about that that never occurred to me as a kid was that... So she's been through a lot of trauma. Like, tons. And so, like, her whole reaction to all of it in the second movie where she's, like, kicking ass and fighting all the way through is, like, her directly addressing, like... You know, I've been attacked for and traumatized for so long. Now it's my turn to get revenge. <laughs> you know, it's it's a crazy. It, I, it never occurred to me that that's a how how that she would be experiencing that. You know? Yeah, exactly. And your your point about the trauma is is well taken. Um, and I was just thinking, comparing the two movies. You know, Kyle hands in the first one. Kyle hands her a gun. He has to go out for supplies. 
and she looks at the gun and she kind of picks it up and puts it back down because she's never really she's never really handled the gun before you know flash forward to the second one and they're in mexico and they pull up you know the big underground right. <laughs> and they go in and he's like my mom is always prepared and you see there's nothing on either side but all these guns and ammo and, <laughs> you know, weapons of mass destruction basically and she put that all together and right. so she she went from this you know woman who was plunked in the middle of this situation that she ne neither asked for or wanted as she said and she has certainly made a weakness of strength. Yeah. Yeah. Here, this was my idea as I was watching this with, because uh, I just rewatched Terminator again as well, not too long ago. And uh, I was watching it with my wife, and I, and I kept thinking, you know, the movie I want to see is between her driving the Jeep into Mexico, pregnant with the dog, and her essentially kind of like leaving Mexico. Like I want to see what happened during her Mexico. Right. What happened <laughs> so. in the intervening years? Yes. Yeah. That that would be a good story. I'd like that. I would like and to. You watch don't it too. Yeah, you don't even need a terminator necessarily. It's just her kind of like training and and meeting mm -hmm. like, you know, uh weird uh, you know, underground soldiers and you know, like like in my mind what happens is that like while she's training in some town somewhere it turns out that like the local village is being terrorized by like some weird bandits, and so she has to like rise up and like defend the, the village with all of her new skills. Like that's the movie I envision. <laughs> yeah, I I watched that movie for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, here's a little fun fact about Terminator Two that you may not know. Um, there there's a dream sequence where Sarah Connor falls asleep at the picnic table, and she dreams about the bombs dropping. Oh, right. And, but she's, she, in the dream, she's standing outside the playground, and it's her in the waitress outfit with a little boy. Mm. John Lee's like three years old or something, or two years old, and, and she's trying to warn them, and the bomb explodes. Linda Hamilton did not play both parts of that. Oh. She has a twin, identical twin sister, and That's the identical right. twin sister was the one in the waitress outfit in the dream sequence. I remember yourself. about this. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and and you know, having a little boy on the on the you know the, the little go round and the sing swing set and stuff like that. Uh, but yes, that's she actually has an identical twin sister, so she was used in the dream sequence. That must be really handy for making movies if you need like a right? double. <laughs> and I don't think her identical twin sister is necessarily an actress, but. I think it was a um, it was a clever clever idea to use it, and then you don't have to do so much editing. I guess. Right, right. I think you know one one of the things I liked about this, and you mentioned Alien as well, which is another one that I feel accomplishes the same goal. Where you know, so when I was growing up, all the now movies were like so boring and so the same. Where it's like. The monster shows up, the monster kills everyone. There's one guy that kind of survives at the end, but he's like super haggard and all chopped up and, and not gonna live. Mm -hmm. and, and this formula was so common that I think both Terminator and Alien stood out dramatically to me because they were unlike these, other, like they even broke other parts of the formula. <laughs> Uh, and so, like, the, I think with hindsight, almost everything from the 80s kind of disappears in my mind 
because those two are so fabulous. <laughs> and they had super strong second sequel movies. Yeah, for sure. And, and kind of slightly different than the first ones, too. So, I, Alien, the first one, was the last movie I had nightmares where, like, I saw Alien the next day. I, was, I had not slept because I was terrified. <laughs> That's understandable. Yeah. Now, yeah, since then, I love that movie, but it, it uh, nothing else has that same juice. You know, like, I, I haven't quite gotten to that same place with, with anything else. <laughs> right, because, well, first of all, it was the set of the ship, very isolating, so well done. A lot of close quarter kind of shots. Mm-hmm. The alien, you don't see that much of the alien on the screen. Again, it's a lot in your head. Right. So the first time the alien kills somebody, um, spoiler alert, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be that person for this entire show. Um, You know, burst out of John Hurt's character's chest, which is such a defining scene moment. Right. By the way, the rest of the cast didn't know that was going to happen. So their reactions (laughs) were real. I did not know that. I mean, that that, that I would that that makes sense because they look scared. <laughs> yeah, they didn't know. They just know that he was going to be horribly sick, and they had to hold him down or something. And but he was he and the and the special effects guys were the only one, you know, ones that knew that the alien was going to burst out of his chest. Wow! But you don't see <laughs> the full on alien until what forty five minutes into the film. It's a long ways, yeah. And Harry Dean Stanton's character is looking for the cat. Right. <laughs> into that area with the chains and the water. I don't know where that water was coming from. That was kind of weird. Yeah. Doing but um, anyway. I guess that's how spaceships work in the future, where they, they need chains and water to... to <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, and I must share this with you because we're talking about aliens, and I'm sure you've probably seen this on the interwebs. But... There's a meme going around that uh, this this man was watching Aliens with his wife, and he said, I've been writing movie reviews for 10 years, and my wife came up with the best movie review ever after watching Alien. There's a danger. The smart woman tells everybody. Nobody listens to the smart woman. She's the only one that survives her and her cat <laughs> as a cat owner i thought you would appreciate that as well that really hits the nail on the head too right there, there is some quality to that movie with when you think about it where like she is constantly right and she's constantly warning people <laughs> right no one is no one listens oh and no one listens to the smart woman yeah I, and, and, and while we're at it, we should mention yeah, Harry Dean Stanton, you know, uh, R.I.P. He, he was such an excellent actor. <laughs> so good in everything. Yeah, yeah. Thought, he's got these really subtle little head. moments where he just he gives a little look or a smile or, or something, and it's like, oh, man, you really knew what you were doing. <laughs> Conveyed so much. He's also one of those actors, for me, he's like Gary Oldman. He fades into a role. In some ways, I would watch him in something like that guy looks familiar. Oh, it's Harry Dean Stanton, and right. I did the same thing with Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. I watched 
watched all of the Hogwarts movies up through the <laughs> up through the one where um, Sirius Black gets killed. Sorry, another spoil alert. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm watching it. I'm thinking this guy looks really familiar. And, and then I looked it up on IMDb. It's Gary Oldman. Of course, it's Gary Oldman. For some reason, he and Harry Dean Stanton to me have that quality of fading into a role. Oh yeah. But necessarily recognize them, but. Yeah, Gary Oldman too does this thing where uh, he even looks different. Like he does something where like he changes like his facial hair or mm-hmm. you know like he visually looks very different from role to role in a way where like even when I know he's supposed to be in the movie, sometimes I'm like, wait, that was Gary Oldman? Oh, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. He's kind of does that. I mean, it's not quite Lon Chaney level, but like he certainly tries to find a way where he's like, what am I, how would this person look rather than this person looks like Gary Oldman, you know? You're listening to klfm.org in beautiful Split, Croatia. Mid-Valley Halloween Spooktacular 2020! Mutations at the movies with Victrola and Austin. Lost Hearts by M.R. James It was, as far as I can ascertain, in September of the year of 1811 that a post-chase drew up before the door of Aswarby Hall, in the heart of Lincolnshire. The little boy who was the only passenger in the chase, and who jumped out as soon as it had stopped, looked about him with the keenest curiosity during the short interval that elapsed between the ringing of the bell and the opening of the hall door. He saw a tall, square, red brick house, built in the reign of Anne. A stone-pillared porch had been added to the pure classical style of 1790. The windows of the house were many, tall and narrow, with small panes and thick white woodwork. A pediment, pierced with a round window, crowned the front. 
There were wings to the right and left, connected by curious glazed galleries, supported by colonnades with the central block. These wings plainly contained the stables and offices of the house. Each was surmounted by an ornamental cupola with a gilded vane. An evening light shone on the building, making the window panes glow like so many fires. Away from the hall in front stretched a flat park studded with oaks and fringed with firs, which stood out against the sky. The clock in the church tower, buried in the trees on the edge of the park, only its golden weathercock catching the light, was striking six, and the sound came gently beating down the wind. It was altogether a pleasant impression, though tinged with the sort of melancholy appropriate to an evening in early autumn that was conveyed to the mind of the boy who was standing on the porch waiting for the door to open to him. The post-chase had brought him to the Warwickshire, where, some six months before, he had been left an orphan. Now, owing to the generous offer of his elderly cousin, Mr. Abney, he had come to live at Aswerby. The offer was unexpected, because all who knew anything of Mr. Abney looked upon him as a somewhat austere recluse, into whose steady-going household the advent of a small boy would import a new and, it seemed, incongruous element. The truth is that very little was known of Mr. Abney's pursuits or temper. The professor of Greek at Cambridge had been heard to say that no one knew more of the religious beliefs of the latter pagans than did the owner of Aswerby. Certainly his library contained all the then-available books bearing on the mysteries, the Orphic poems, the worships of the Mithras, and the Neoplatonists. In the marble-paved hall stood a fine group of Mithras slaying a bull, which had been imported from the Levant at great expense by the owner. He had contributed to description of it to the Gentleman's Magazine, and he had written a remarkable series of articles in the Critical Museum on the superstitions of the Romans and the Lower Empire. He was looked upon, in fine, as a man wrapped up in his books, and it was a matter of great surprise among his neighbors that he should ever have heard of his orphan cousin, Stephen Elliot, much more that he should have volunteered to make him an inmate of Aswardby Hall. Whatever may have been expected by his neighbors, it is certain that Mr. Abney, the tall, the thin, the austere, seemed inclined to give his young cousin a kindly reception. The moment the front door was opened, he darted out of his study, rubbing his hands with delight. "'How are you, my boy? How are you? How old are you?' said he. "'That is, you are not too much tired, I hope, by your journey to eat your supper.' "'No.' "'Thank you, sir,' said Master Elliot. "'I am pretty well.' "'That's a good lad,' said Mr. Abney. "'And how old are you, my boy?' It seemed a little odd that he should have asked the question twice in the first two minutes of their acquaintance. "'I'm twelve years old next birthday, sir,' said Stephen. "'And when is your birthday, my dear boy?' Eleventh of September, eh?' "'That's well. That's very well.' Nearly a year hence, isn't it? I like. <laughs> I like to get these things down in my book. You sure it's twelve? Certain? Yes, quite sure, sir. Well then, take him to Mrs. Bunch's room, Parks, and let him have his tea, 
supper, whatever it is. Yes, sir, answered the staid Mr. Parks, and conducted Stephen to the lower regions. Mrs. Bunch was the most comfortable and humane person that Stephen had as yet met at Aswerby. She made him completely at home. They were great friends in a quarter of an hour, and great friends they remained. Mrs. Bunch had been born in the neighborhood some fifty-five years before the date of Stephen's arrival, and her residence at the hall was of twenty years standing. Consequently, if anyone knew the ins and outs of the house and the district, Mrs. Bunch knew them, and she was by no means disinclined to communicate her information. Certainly there were plenty of things about the hall and the hall gardens which Stephen, who was of an adventurous and inquiring turn, was anxious to have explained to him. Who built the temple at the end of the laurel walk? Who was the old man whose picture hung on the staircase, sitting at a table, with a skull under his hand? These and many similar points were cleared up by the resources of Mrs. Bunch's powerful intellect. There were others, however, of which the explanations furnished were less satisfactory. One November evening, Stephen was sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, reflecting on his surroundings. Is Mr. Abney a good man, and will he go to heaven? he suddenly asked, with the peculiar confidence which children possess in the ability of their elders to settle these questions, the decision of which is believed to be reserved for other tribunals. Good? Bless the child, said Mrs. Bunch. Master's a kind of soul as ever I see. Didn't I never tell you of the little boy as he took in out of the street, as you may say, this seven years back? And the little girl, two years after I first come here? No, do tell me all about them, Mrs. Bunch. Now, this minute. Well, said Miss Bunch, this little girl I don't seem to recollect so much about. I know Master brought her back with him from his walk one day, and gave orders to Mrs. Ellis, as was housekeeper then, as she should be took every care with. And the poor child hadn't no one belonging to her. She told me so her own self. And here she lived with us a matter of three weeks it might be. And then, whether she were something of a gypsy in her blood or what not, but one morning she out of her bed afore any of us had opened an eye and neither track nor trace of her have I set eyes on since. Master was wonderful put about, and had all the pawns dragged. But it's my belief she was had away by them gypsies, for there was singing round the house for as much as an hour of the night she went, and Parks, he declared as he heard them a-callin' in the woods all that afternoon. Dear, dear, a hod child she was, so silent in her ways and all, but I was wonderful taken up with her, so domesticated she was. Surprising. And what about the little boy? said Stephen. Ah, that poor boy, sighed Mrs. Bunch. He were a foreigner. Javani, he called himself. And he came a-tweakin' his erdy-gurdy round and about the drive one winter day, and Master had him up in that minute, and asked all about where he came from, and how old he was, and how he made his way, and where was his relatives, and all as kind as heart could wish. But it went the same way with him. They're a hunruly lot, them foreign nations, I do suppose, and he was off one fine morning just the same as the girl. 
why he went and what he done was our question for as much as a year after. For he never took his urdy-gurdy, and there it lays on the shelf. The remainder of the evening was spent by Stephen in miscellaneous cross-examination of Mrs. Bunch and in efforts to extract a tune from the hurdy-gurdy. That night he had a curious dream. At the end of the passage at the top of the house, in which his bedroom was situated, there was an old disused bathroom. It was kept locked, but the upper half of the door was glazed, and, since the muslin curtains which used to hang there had long been gone, you could look in and see the lead-lined bath affixed to the wall on the right hand, with its head towards the window. On the night of which I am speaking, Stephen Elliot found himself, as he thought, looking through the glazed door. The moon was shining through the window, and he was gazing at a figure which lay in the bath. His description of what he saw reminds me of what I once beheld myself in the famous vaults of St. Michan's Church in Dublin, which possesses the horrid property of preserving corpses from decay for centuries. A figure inexpressly thin and pathetic, of a dusty leaden color, enveloped in a shroud-like garment, the thin lips crooked into a faint and dreadful smile, the hands pressed tightly over the region of the heart. As he looked upon it, a distant, almost inaudible moan seemed to issue from its lips, and the arms began to stir. The terror of the sight forced Stephen backwards, and he awoke to the sight that he was indeed standing on the cold, boarded floor of the passage in the full light of the moon. With a courage which I do not think can be common among boys of his age, he went to the door of the bathroom to ascertain if the figure of his dreams really were there. It was not, and he went back to bed. Mrs. Bunch was much impressed next morning by his story, and went so far as to replace the muslin curtain over the glazed door of the bathroom. Mr. Abney, moreover, to whom he confided his experiences at breakfast, was greatly interested, and made notes of the matter in what he called his book. The spring equinox was approaching, as Miss Abney frequently reminded his cousin, adding that this has been always considered by the ancients to be a critical time for the young, that Stephen would do well to take care of himself, and to shut his bedroom window at night, and that Censorinus had some valuable remarks on the subject. Two incidents that occurred about this time made an impression upon Stephen's mind. The first was after an unusually uneasy and oppressed night that he had passed, though he could not recall any particular dream that he had had. The following evening, Mrs. Bunch was occupying herself in mending his nightgown. "'Gracious me, Master Stephen,' she broke forth rather irritably. "'How do you manage to tear your nightdress all to flinders this way? "'Look here, sir, what trouble you do give to poor servants "'that have to darn and mend after you?' "'Look here, sir, what trouble you do give to poor servants "'that have to damn and mend after you?' "'There was indeed a most destructive "'and apparently wanton series of slits or scorings in the garment.' which would undoubtedly require a skillful needle to make good. They were confined to the left side of the chest, long parallel slits about six inches in length, some of them not quite piercing the texture of the linen. Stephen could only express his entire ignorance of their origin. He was sure they were not there the night before. But, he said, Mrs. Bunch, 
They are just the same as the scratches on the side of my bedroom door, and I'm sure I've never had anything to do with making them. Mrs. Bunch gazed at him open-mouthed, then snatched up a candle, darted hastily from the room, and was heard making her way upstairs. In a few minutes, she came down. Well, she said, Master Stephen, it's a funny thing to me how them marks and scratches can a-come there, too high up for any cat or dog to have made them, much less a rat. For all the world, like a Chinaman's fingernails, as my uncle in the tea trade used to tell us when we was girls together. I wouldn't say nothing to Master, not if I was you, Master Stephen, my dear, and just turn the key of the door when you go to your bed. I always do, Mrs. Bunch, as soon as I've said my prayers. Ah, that's a good child. Always say your prayers, and then no one can't hurt you. Herewith, Mrs. Bunch addressed herself to mending the injured nightgown, with intervals of meditation until bedtime. This was on a Friday night in March, 1812. On the following evening, the usual duet of Stephen and Mrs. Bunch was augmented by the sudden arrival of Mr. Parks, the butler, who, as a rule, kept himself rather to himself in his own pantry. He did not see that Stephen was there. He was, moreover, flustered and less slow of speech than was his wont. Master may get up his own wine, if he likes, of an evening, was the first remark. Either I do it in the daytime or not at all, Mrs. Bunch. I don't know what it may be. Very like it's the rats, or the wind got into the cellars. But I'm not so young as I was, and I can't go through with it as I have done. Well, Mr. Parks, you know it is a surprising place for the rats, is the hall. I'm not denying that, Mrs. Bunch. And, to be sure, many a time I've heard the tale from the men in the shipyards about the rat that could speak. I never laid no confidence in that before. But, tonight, if I demeaned myself to lay my ear to the door of the further bin, I could pretty much have heard what they was saying. Oh, there, Mr. Parks, I've no patience with your fancies. Rats talking in the wine cellar, indeed. Well, Mrs. Bunch, I've no wish to argue with you. All I say is, if you choose to go to the far bin and lay your ear to the door, you may prove my words this minute. What nonsense you do talk, Mr. Parks, not fit for children to listen to. Why, you'll be frightening Master Stephen there out of his wits. What? Master Stephen? said Parks, awakening to the consciousness of the boy's presence. Master Stephen knows well enough that I'm a-playing a joke with you, Mrs. Bunch. In fact, Master Stephen knew much too well to suppose that Mr. Parks had in the first instance intended a joke. He was interested, not altogether pleasantly, in the situation. But all his questions were unsuccessful in inducing the butler to give any more detailed account of his experiences in the wine cellar. We have now arrived at March 24th, 1812. It was a day of curious experiences for Stephen a windy, noisy day, which filled the house and the gardens with a restless impression. As Stephen stood by the fence of the grounds, he looked out into the park. He felt as if an endless procession of unseen people were sweeping past him on the wind, borne on resistlessly and aimlessly, vainly striving to stop themselves, to catch at something that might arrest their flight and bring them once again into contact with the living world of which they had formed a part.
After luncheon that day, Mr. Abney said, Stephen, my boy, do you think you could manage to come to me tonight as late as eleven o'clock in my study? I shall be busy until that time, and I wish to show you something connected with your future life, which it is most important that you should know. You are not to mention this matter to Mrs. Bunch, nor to anyone else in the house, and you had better go to your room at the usual time. Here was a new excitement added to life. Stephen eagerly grasped at the opportunity of sitting up till eleven o'clock. He looked in at the library door on his way upstairs that evening, and saw a brazier, which he had often noticed in the corner of the room, moved out before the fire. An old silver gilt cup stood on the table, filled with red wine, and some written sheets of paper lay near it. Mr. Abney was sprinkling some incense on the brazier from a round silver box as Stephen passed, but did not seem to notice his step. The wind had fallen, and there was a still night and a full moon. At about ten o'clock, Stephen was standing at the open window of his bedroom, looking out over the country. Still as the night was, the mysterious population of the distant moonlit woods was not yet lulled to rest. From time to time, strange cries, as of lost and despairing wanderers, sounded from across the mere. They might be the notes of owls or water birds, yet they did not quite resemble either sound. Were not they coming nearer? Now they sounded from the nearer side of the water, and in a few moments they seemed to be floating about among the shrubberies. Then they ceased. Just as Stephen was thinking of shutting the window and resuming his reading of Robinson Crusoe, he caught sight of two figures standing on the graveled terrace that ran along the garden side of the hall. The figures of a boy and girl, as it seemed. They stood side by side, looking up at the windows. Something in the form of the girl recalled irresistibly his dream of the figure in the bath. The boy inspired him with more acute fear. Whilst the girl stood still, half-smiling, with her hands clasped over her heart, the boy, a thin shape with black hair and ragged clothing, raised his arms in the air with an appearance of menace and of unappeasable hunger and longing. The moon shone upon his almost transparent hands, and Stephen saw that the nails were fearfully long and that the light shone through them. As he stood with his arms thus raised, he disclosed a terrifying spectacle. On the left side of his chest, there opened a black and gaping rent, and there fell upon Stephen's brain, rather than upon his ear, the impression of one of those hungry and desolate cries that he had heard resounding over the woods of Aswerby all that evening. In another moment, this dreadful pair had moved swiftly and noiselessly over the dry gravel, and he saw them no more. Inexpressibly frightened as he was, he determined to take his candle and go down to Mr. Abney's study, for the hour appointed for their meeting was near at hand. The study or library opened out of the front hall on one side, and Stephen, urged on by his terrors, did not take long in getting there. To effect an entrance was not so easy. It was not locked, he felt sure, for the key was on the outside of the door, as usual. His repeated knocks produced no answer. Mr. Abney was engaged. 
he was speaking. What? Why did he try to cry out? And why was the cry choked in his throat? Had he, too, seen the mysterious children? But now everything was quiet, and the door yielded to Stephen's terrified and frantic pushing. On the table in Mr. Abney's study, certain papers were found which explained the situation to Stephen Elliot when he was of an age to understand them. The most important sentences were as follows. It was a belief very strongly and generally held by the ancients, of whose wisdom in these matters I have had such experience as induces me to place confidence in their assertions, that by enacting certain processes, which to us moderns have something of a barbaric complexion, a very remarkable enlightenment of the spiritual faculties in man may be attained. That, for example, by absorbing the personalities of a certain number of his fellow creatures, an individual may gain a complete ascendancy over those orders of spiritual beings which control the elemental forces of our universe. It is recorded of Simon Magus that he was able to fly in the air, to become invisible, or to assume any form he pleased by the agency of the soul of a boy whom, to use the libelous phrase employed by the author of the Clementine Recognitions, he had murdered. I find it set down, moreover, with considerable detail in the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, that similar happy results may be produced by the absorption of the hearts of not less than three human beings below the age of 21 years. To the testing of the truth of this receipt, I have devoted the greater part of the last 20 years, selecting as a corpa villa of my experiment such persons as could conveniently be removed without occasioning a sensible gap in society. The first step I effected by the removal of one Phoebe Stanley, a girl of gypsy extraction, on March 24, 1792. The second, by the removal of a wandering Italian lad named Giovanni Palawi, on the night of March 23, 1805. The final victim, to employ a word repugnant in the highest degree to my feelings, must be my cousin, Stephen Elliot. His day must be March 24, 1812. The best means of effecting the required absorption is to remove the heart from the living subject, to reduce it to ashes, and to mingle them with about a pint of some red wine, preferably port. The remains of the first two subjects, at least, it will be well to conceal. A disused bathroom or wine cellar will be found convenient for such a purpose. Some annoyance may be experienced from the psychic portion of the subjects, which popular language dignifies with the name of ghosts. But the man of philosophic temperament, to whom alone the experiment is appropriate, will be little prone to attach importance to the feeble efforts of these beings to wreak their vengeance on him. I contemplate with the liveliest satisfaction the enlarged and emaciated existence which the experiment, if successful, will confer on me, not only placing me beyond the reach of human justice, so called, but eliminating, to a great extent, the prospect of death itself. Mr. Abney was found in his chair, his head thrown back, his face stamped with an expression of rage, fright, and mortal pain. 
In his left side was a terrible lacerated wound, exposing the heart. There was no blood on his hands, and a long knife that lay on the table was perfectly clean. A savage, wild cat might have inflicted the injuries. The window of the study was open, and it was the opinion of the coroner that Mr. Abney had met his death by the agency of some wild creature. But Stephen Elliott's study of the papers I have quoted led him to a very different conclusion. You're listening to klfm.org in beautiful Split, Croatia. Mid-Valley Halloween Spooktacular 2020! Mutations. At the movies with Victrola and Austin. Well, it looks like we are almost near the end of Videodrome here, so uh, we might have to head on back uh, to our our respective uh, abodes. This has been a lot of fun, uh, hanging out uh, on the radio. Always great hanging out with you in the station. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's a little bit of a bummer to have this big plexiglass shield between the two of us, but uh, at least we can keep it safe. (laughs) Well, these are the times we live in. Indeed, indeed. Uh, there well, are no should... monsters this year except for the virus, I think. <laughs> that, yeah, uh, the, the virus and uh, uh, politicians, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, there's that. In fact, there's still time, so I'm going to make this little statement right now. Uh, please vote. Uh, get that ballot filled out. Uh, if you're in the Northwest, you probably live in a state where you can just mail it in. Uh, easy peasy. Um, and uh, if, if you didn't get a, uh, a mail-in ballot early and uh, you still want to make a change, uh, you can go out and, and put that mask on and vote in person. Um, although it is challenging, and uh, I, 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 um, I respect your service for having to do that, because that's, that's a long wait in those lines. Indeed. And I second all that Austin just said. Yeah. Well, uh, we should mention where some of your radio stuff, because not only uh, um, do you do a, a couple of different uh, versions of the guitar shop, but this time of year, you've got Halloween shows. <laughs> I do. Thank you. So Guitar Shop Radio happens on Freeform Portland, which if you're in the Portland area, you can listen on 98.3 FM and 90.3 FM, freeformportland.org. Um, I had one yesterday, but if you go to either twitter.com slash guitar shop radio or facebook.com slash guitar shop radio or Instagram guitar shop radio, I have links to yesterday's show. Uh, October 28th, I will be live on KPSU, kpsu.org, Portland State University's radio station, and we're going to do another Halloween show. So two annual Halloween shows now. So Nice. Do you have specific themes for these, or are they just kind of general? The one I did yesterday had a devil theme, uh, a devil theme, devils and some demons. I don't know what I'm doing for the one on Wednesday. I'm still chewing on that. We'll see. Yeah. There's a lot of good, I'm t- thinking like Screaming Jay Hawkins has got a little demon song. And, mm-hmm. yeah, you could go a lot of different ways with that. He was a crazy guy. Yeah. yeah. He's got a few that fit for the Halloween season, actually, now that I think about yeah. it. Yeah. Right on. Well, thank yeah, you it, so much, Austin. It's been well, a blast, as usual. Yeah, thank you. And, and, and certainly with, uh, you know, what, what I like about the two versions of Guitar Shop is you're getting two different 
flavors of it depending on the day of the week. So that's kind of the, 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 the bonus of that. So Yeah, the Freeform one is every other Saturday, so it's twice a month. Mm-hmm. And KPSU is once a week on Wednesdays. Both are four to six PM on Pacific time. Yeah, yeah, and 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 considering the uh, the, the crazy uh, world that we've been experiencing this year, it's it's impressive that both of them are still running and broadcasting new shows and things like that. Because yeah, a lot of a lot of radio kind of went away this year in in a sad sad kind of way, and so the people that are remaining, I'm I'm, I'm very excited for. Yeah, so many things went away this year. It is very sad. Restaurants and other businesses as well. So it's it's nice to see the radio stations still going. Yeah. There's a little Way. bit of that invisible nice. man problem going around. <laughs> right? Well, thank you so much, Austin. It has been just a blast to be here with you. And happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I'm just flipping around and I see it looks like the blob is ending. So we'll, we'll, oh, go, out, we'll go out on the blob theme song here. Which, Let's uh, do it. Is one of my faves. Um, uh, he creeps and sneaks and, and slides and, and all those things. Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you very much, uh, DJ Victrola. It's our, our Halloween spooktacular. And, uh, and yeah, I guess uh, now it's time to put the decorations away. Indeed. Thank you, Austin. Thank you. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor Right through the door and all around the wall A splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob
Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob. Beware of the blob, it The blob and creeps and I played it yesterday and I was singing it over. <laughs> yeah, so it's now on streaming somewhere. And I realized that I have not seen the blob since I was very, very young. Oh, me either. Yeah. But I remember that one terrified me. And I clearly didn't hear the theme song at the end. Because, <laughs> like, years later, when I someone played that the theme song for me, I was like, this isn't the blob. That, that's a scary movie. <laughs> well, I actually saw the original Blob, I think, after I saw Son of the Blob in the movie theater when it came out in, like, 1971. And I went with my friends because we went to see Son of the Blob, which was... I was thinking about it all week because I'd been playing the Blob, and I was... I actually thought about that more than the Steve McQueen one. Because <laughs> um, that one I saw in the movie theater, and it wasn't black and white. It was, you know, color and a big screen, so... It's it's not a great movie, but you know, <laughs> that's not really what the appeal is, is it? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, Son I, of the was... Blob scared the crap out of me, and then I watched the original Blob, and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I kind of had that same thing where, so when I was growing up, if you paid to see a movie in a theater, it better be good, because um, that was a fairly costly um, yeah. experience. Uh, and so, like, there was something about seeing cheap horror movies at home that you didn't feel like you wasted your money. <laughs> right. It was like, at least I didn't pay to see the blob. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, it's free on like, it was like the Late Late Show or one of those, or Saturday afternoon horror yeah. things, you know, whatever. I also saw The Exorcist when it came out in the movie theater. Wow. The theater My friends, and I was quite young. I was like about, about 12. Right. So it's, it's not exactly something I would recommend for 12 year olds but you know, <laughs> like i went with my friends and, now yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah that one and i also saw the amityville horror in the movie theater and i will never watch that movie again scared the crap out of me oh my god i started watching that as a kid on some late night thing and I think I probably got about 20 minutes into Amityville Horror, and I was like, no, I can't do this. No. <laughs> so I have no idea what happens after, like, the first 20 minutes. You know what? You know what? You don't need to know. It's fine. Right. I watched it all the way through. I'm here to tell you. It's fine. You don't need to watch it. But I remember um, I was living down the shore, because everybody goes down the Jersey Shore, like, a lot of times for the summer. And I was actually living down the shore and working down the shore. And a whole bunch of us, we all worked at Geno's. You know, the burger place? Sure. Doesn't exist anymore. And a whole bunch of us, it came out then, and a whole bunch of us, I mean, there was like two dozen of us going to the movies, because we all had all. And we went to watch the Amityville Horror, and I was like, yeah, scared the crap out of me. (laughs) Uh, I didn't see all that many horror movies in theaters. Most of my horror movies were at home. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. Yeah, in the 80s, like, Maybe I saw Ghostbusters in the theater, but that's not scary. You know? 
<laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not going to keep you up at night. Right. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of the things that were were deemed horror that I saw in the theater. I think the first Friday the Thirteenth really scared me, uh, and the first um, Nightmare really scared me. And I didn't really go back for either of the sequels in the theater. Oh yeah, you know, I never watched that. It looked yeah. too frightening for me. And and there became a point. I loved horror films. I loved mostly the classic ones. And then when things got really scary, I stopped watching them. You know, although I'll tell you something, speaking of Lovecraft, the Joe and I have watched Lovecraft Country. Oh, it's, yeah. I think it's on HBO. Mm -hmm. It is so good. Yeah, Marla's been wanting to watch that. It is awesome. I don't know if you guys have HBO. We do. But yeah, we just we just finished watching the whole thing. And, and apparently a, a friend of mine has, has informed me there's a book. So I might get the book and read it. But... It is amazing. It is done so well, and it, it mixes a lot of actual history in it. Because I remember what? Well, uh, that was, I also watched The Watchmen too. But um, but yeah, it's really, really well done, and it's got mostly an African American cast. There are very few white yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, it, really, it's got really well done. It's got such good reviews, and it's one of those things where, like, we're trying to find the time to fit it all in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
You're listening to klfm.org in beautiful Split, Croatia. Thanks. 